As mentioned, the text for this morning's sermon is Judges 7, verses 24 to chapter 8, verse 28. We've read that passage already together. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you think about the book of Judges, you might not think immediately of what we typically think of when we think of a judge, especially in the modern day sense of the word. The book of Judges usually doesn't bring to mind things like uh, images like courtrooms, laws, and lawyers. And when I think of the book of Judges, I typically think about warfare. It's because the book of Judges is filled with Israel's battles against the Lord's enemies. The story of Gideon is no different. Much of the focus is on Gideon's battle against the Midianites. It's actually interesting that this book is called the book of Judges. Name almost doesn't seem to fit. Perhaps we should call it the book of Israel's downward spiral into apostasy. Maybe that would fit better. Or maybe we could call it the book of imperfect warriors in Israel. That would certainly fit as well. And yet we call it judges. God raised up judges to save Israel. There doesn't seem to be many, too many times that these saviors actually do the work of judging in Israel. That's not what's on the, the pages of what we read. However, we do get a small example in our text. The focus is, again, on Gideon's battle against Midian. But throughout this battle, Gideon is forced to bring his judgments in Israel and to the nations also. The thing that becomes clear through this passage is that Gideon is an imperfect judge. He's an imperfect judge. It calls for a greater judge who will not stumble like he does. And of course, this will refer to our Lord Jesus Christ. So I've summarized the sermon under the following theme and points. The Lord's appointed judge gives out his judgments. We'll look at, first of all, the flawed judgments of Gideon. And then we'll look at the perfect judgments of Jesus Christ. So the Lord had called Gideon to deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. The main battle took place in our sermon last week with Judges chapter 7. And Gideon and his army of 300 men, they gained the victory over Midian's great forces by the power of the Lord. And what was left of the Midianite army was now on the run. Midianites, they fled eastward to cross the Jordan and to escape the land of Israel. In response, Gideon sent messengers throughout Ephraim, and he wanted them to, to cut off the fords of the Jordan where the army of Midian could cross. The Ephraimites, they heard this call, and they did as Gideon ordered. Now, it's clear from our reading that some of the Midianite army was able to escape. They had crossed the Jordan. But Ephraim still made some important gains. He captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. 
an important capture for ending Midian's reign of terror. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb. They killed Zeb, the winepress of Zeb. They beheaded, beheaded them and took the heads to Gideon and his army. And you think that after all the oppression that Israel faced from Midian, that there would be nothing but celebration within the ranks of the Israelites. This, this was a symbolic picture of, of Israel's complete victory. But it was not the case. Ephraim was angry. He said to Gideon, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? It says they accused him fiercely. Why are they so angry? Well, it's because they wanted more glory for themselves. They wanted to take more credit for the victory, even though all the credit should have gone to God. They were jealous of the other tribes who had a larger role. And this confirms again the truth described in James 4, the verses 1 and 2. There we read, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's what's going on here. That's a good check for us as well. Do you find yourself quarreling and fighting with others? Why is that? Are the passions of the flesh at, at war within us? Are covetous desires or sinful desires causing animosity? Not necessarily, but it's a good check. This is what happened in our text. Now Gideon answered Ephraim tactfully. He said, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? That's Gideon's tribe. Basically he's saying, you know, if it's glory you want, then look. The little you have done in capturing these two princes, it far outweighs what I've done in the main battle so far. So you have glory. And as a result, Ephraim quieted down. Now, Gideon did speak wisely here, in a sense, very tactfully. However, it's unclear whether or not his next actions are wise and good. And we're going to go through the rest of his actions and choices in this text and try to, to analyze it. The first thing that Gideon does next is he continued the pursuit of Midian. Now, this might seem understandable, of course, but the Midianite army had already been pushed out of the land. But Gideon crossed the Jordan and kept up the pursuit. He was determined to capture their two kings. And he didn't want anything to stop him. And we might already start to question his actions here. Was this necessary? Midian was already defeated. Must he keep going beyond Israel's borders in this battle? Now, to be sure, Israel had some territory east of the Jordan River. Succoth and Penuel, uh, they belonged to the tribe of Gad. And yet Gideon went even beyond this, far beyond this. 
furthermore, the Lord is interestingly silent in this passage. He doesn't command Gideon to do this, but He doesn't explicitly condemn him either, so we need to be cautious here. The next thing to look at is Gideon's dealings with Succoth and Penuel. Gideon made it to Succoth and Ged, an Israelite city. By this time, as men, they were simply exhausted from pursuing for so long. So he said to the people there, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeb and Zomuna, the kings of Midian. The men of Succoth, they refused. Are the hands of Zeb and Zomuna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? They're saying in a way, if you want us to help us, or we, if you want us to help you, you're going to prove that you're going to win first. Perhaps they did not believe that Gideon could overtake the Midianites. Maybe they didn't want to unnecessarily anger the Midianites in case they come attack again. Maybe it was an outright rejection as, of Gideon as the Lord's judge. It was a lack of faith in the Lord's power to deliver the rest of the Midianite army into Gideon's hand. Or maybe they were simply being selfish with their food. Whatever it may be, it was really an insult to Gideon and his men. Think about the book of 1 Samuel. Think about how Nabal refused to give provisions to David and his men in 1 Samuel after David had protected all of his property. David was furious, angry enough to kill Nabal. And eventually the Lord himself did put Nabal to death. Now Gideon responded to Succoth in almost a similar way, saying, When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I shall flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars too. Similar with Penuel, he asked them for food. They responded like suck off, so Gideon said, When I come again in peace, I shall tear down this tower. Gideon and his men, they pressed on. They came around to the opposite side that Midian would have expected. There they surprised the remaining army. And Gideon captured the kings he was trying so hard to get. He could now return triumphantly to Israel and give out his judgments. And give out his judgments he did. Came to Succoth, questioned a young man there. He carefully took down the names of all the elders of the city. Then he punished them with thorns and with briars. And Gideon then came to Penuel and tore down their tower, just as he said, but he went further, killing the men of the city. Now, Gideon, again, was not just a captain of the Israelite army. He was also God's appointed judge. These are parts of his judgment, but what should we make of them? Was it just... Well, Scripture does not say too much here, but the judgment is certainly severe. Using thorns to punish Succoth was a symbol of the curse. Think of Genesis 3. This is as if Gideon is saying to Succoth, you're under the curse of God. Gideon went further at Penuel, killing the men of the city. 
definitely a statement what Gideon believed they deserved under the penalty of God's wrath. This could very well be true considering the terrible reception they gave to God's chosen deliverer. In any case, Gideon's judgments are in line with the truth found in 1 Peter 4. Judgment begins with the household of God. The covenant people of God do not necessarily escape the judgments of God's judge. Gideon then turns from bringing judgment upon God's own people to the two Midianite kings. This is the next judgment to examine. First, Gideon questions them. Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Apparently, Midian had killed certain men not mentioned earlier in the story. The kings answered, As you are, so are they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And then Gideon says something very striking. They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. This is an important detail. It's only revealed now. The kings of Midian had killed part of Gideon's family. And this seems to be the main reason why Gideon was set on pursuing Midian, even going far beyond Israelite territory. And this seems to be one of the motivations for his wrath against Succoth and Penuel. They did not help him in his pursuit of these kings who killed part of his family. The focus does not seem to be on completing God's mission. Gideon's focus is his own personal vendetta against these kings for killing his brothers. For he says, I would have spared you if you did not kill my brothers. So Gideon turned to Jethro's firstborn son. He said, rise and kill them. Jethro didn't dare. So after being goaded by Zeba and Zalmunna, Gideon struck them down himself. Now we might think that would be the end of the Gideon story and his judgments, but there's more. Right after this, Israel asked Gideon to become their king. Not only Gideon, but his children and his grandchildren after them. And here Gideon makes the right call. He says, I shall not, I shall, I, I shall, or my son shall not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And that's all well and good. But as we will see in the next chapter, Gideon has a son, and he calls him Abimelech. And that means, my father is king. Was Gideon being sincere here when he said, the Lord shall rule over you, my son shall not rule over you? He called his own son Abimelech, my father is king. Well, things get worse. Gideon ends things very badly. He asks the men of Israel for golden earrings from the spoils of war with the plunder he made in ephod. Now, what is an ephod? We don't have ephods today. Well, an ephod is a priestly garment, part of the priestly garments. Israel's high priest wore an ephod as part of his official priestly clothing. 
On the ephod were 12 precious stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It was also sometimes used for seeking God's will and making important decisions. Gideon then sent up the ephod in his home city of Ophir. Now, this is confusing. Why did Gideon make an ephod? Did he reject the offer of becoming king only to seek the priesthood? Well, it's hard to say. But Gideon had received numerous signs from the Lord throughout this story. Think only of the fleece on the ground. Think of the dream of the Midianites before the battle. And the guidance from God helped both God and Israel. And maybe Gideon made an ephod because he wanted to permanently make himself a source of divine guidance for Israel. It's hard to tell. But what is clear is that Gideon ended very badly here. God had not called him to this task. And what's more, look at how similar his actions are to Aaron in the book of Exodus. Aaron, too, asked Israel for gold jewelry, and with it he shaped a golden calf, and Israel fell into idolatry as a result. It's eerily similar here with Gideon. He walks in the footsteps of Aaron. In short, we can't say everything about Gideon and his actions. We can say that Gideon does indeed show serious flaws as God's judge, and that brings us to our next point. So the story of Gideon came to a tragic end. This passage highlights some of the increasing problems in Israel. New problems arise in this passage here that we haven't seen before, even in in the book of Judges. Tribal disunity begins to bubble up with Ephraim's accusations towards Gideon. God's appointed judge gets caught up in personal payback rather than God's own mission. The judge feels compelled to give, rightly or wrongly, severe punishment against fellow Israelites. Israel shows a complete ignorance about who has saved them. They say to Gideon, rule over us, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Israel begins to hunger for a human king instead of having God rule over them. Finally, the judge himself leads Israel into idolatry. It's all part of that downward spiral. These were all warning signs to Israel. Things are starting to get rotten. That's a warning for us as well. We always need to be on guard against that in the church. See, we have the same sinful hearts as these people in our text. We have the same sinful nature. So we need to be on guard in the church. What is the trajectory of the church? Are we on the same trajectory as Israel in the book of Judges? A slow decline. Rot is setting in among the people of God. Are we listening closely to God's word and following it? Or are we slowly but surely drifting away from it? Are we focused on infighting because of our own personal battles and desires? 
Are we working together for the glory of God and the good of the church? Are we on guard against falling into idolatry, which can enter in so subtly? Remember the words of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 and 13. There we read, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. How true that is with Gideon here in our text. Gideon probably felt that he was standing firm. Look at what just happened. By faith, he led the Israelites in victory over Midian. What a great accomplishment by the power of the Lord. But no sooner is that finished, how quickly he falls. And how far he fell. We must understand that's not only a problem for Gideon. What does 1 Corinthians 10 say? Gideon was overtaken by temptation, which is common to all people. So that temptation can overtake us too. As one preacher put it so well, we are all one inch away from falling. And indeed, if you give the devil an inch, he will take ten miles. But anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. In any case, the end of the Gideon story calls for change in Israel. Things are getting worse. This text was first written for Israelites in the land, and God may have been teaching them. Be careful. Do you want a king like the nations? Look at Gideon. He shows how dangerous this was. They asked for a king, thankfully, or they asked him to be king. Thankfully, he refused because his heart, too, is inclined towards idolatry. And that will bring disaster to Israel. That's what so often happened in the time of the kings. That's why God's people of old in Israel and also us today, we need the perfect judge. We need the perfect king. A king who stays far from idolatry. A king who gives perfect judgments. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Gideon's war against Midian and its two kings became a matter of personal revenge Selfish ambition had captured Gideon's heart, but that wasn't true of Christ. He never fell that way. He says in John 6, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he did that to the end, right to the cross. He did not stumble at the end like Gideon did. He suffered the judgment of God for everyone who repents and believes in him. His back was threshed with the flogging of the Roman soldiers. He wore a crown of thorns, symbolizing the curse that he was taking on himself for us. His palms were given into the hands of his enemies so that they could nail him to the cross. In every way, he bore the judgment of God so that our sins might be completely paid for. 
That's also why the father was pleased with the son, pleased enough to appoint him as king and judge of his people forever. As Paul proclaimed to the people of Acts or Athens in Acts 17, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. Christ is God's appointed judge forever. Just like Gideon came back to Israel in triumph, Christ will come back to this earth in triumph. And when he comes back, it's going to be judgment day. And we will all have to come before the judge. And again, as 1 Peter 4 says, judgment begins with the household of God. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And one thing the covenant people of God must be on guard against is spurning him as king. Not believing that he will come back victorious like the men of Succoth and Penuel. He will come again. And they spurn, those men spurn the work of Gideon, God's appointed judge. They refused to support him. He asked for bread, they gave him insults. So Gideon brought judgment upon them. And yes, Gideon's judgments, they may have been imperfect. They still bear a similarity to the judgment of Christ. Christ also taught the importance of supporting him and his messengers in his work. In Luke 10, Christ sent out the 72 workers and sent them on ahead of him. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God, and Christ instructed them, carry no money bag or knapsack. When you enter a house, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. And Christ says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom for that, than for that town. Strong words, aren't they? In Matthew 25, Christ says similar things about the day of judgment. He, there we read, The Son of Man will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. The cities of Succoth and Benuel seem to come under this type of judgment. Even if Gideon's judgment was imperfect, it's a warning for us nonetheless. On the flip side, Christ says, those who did provide, he will say to them, into the eternal kingdom prepared for you by my Father. It's not that we are earning our salvation by our good deeds. 
but our deeds of support for Christ and his kingdom-building work here on this earth will demonstrate the reality of our faith. Now, in our text, after judgment is finished with the household of God, Christ will turn to the, the heathen nations like Gideon does. And unlike Gideon's firstborn son, Jether, Christ will execute judgment on behalf of his father, and it will be perfect. And this judgment described throughout, throughout Scripture is similar to the judgment experienced by or, uh, Zeba and Solmuna and Oreb and Zeb. Psalm 2 prophesies about Christ, "...you shall break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." Therefore, O kings, be wise, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. Or Psalm 110, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and none will escape. Given these things, we must take care. Perfect, the perfect judge is coming. And we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What shall we then do? Let us come before God in humble repentance. Let us give up rebellious ways. Let us seek the sure and certain forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ, in whom all of our sins are washed away. Let us acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God's appointed King. He will rule over us forever. And let us serve Him. As the Scriptures say, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. When Christ comes back, when he gives his judgments, he will not stumble like Gideon did. What did Gideon do? He took the spoils of war and he made an ephod, ensnaring Israel into idolatry, an instrument of false worship. But Christ will be different. He will refine this world and will turn everything for the service of God. Revelation 21 says that the glory of the nations will be brought into the new Jerusalem. It will all be used to serve the glory of God and the true worship of God. Instead of falling into an endless cycle of sin and punishment, instead of falling into a downward spiral of disobedience, we will be brought evermore into the joy of serving our God forever. And we will experience the favor and love of God forevermore as well. And there will no longer be the curse. Amen.